with public companies, there's so much information, but private companies, those transactions, there are databases, but really don't know what the market's appetite is currently. And you get a lot of feedback when you go out to market. If you have someone run a process and they're talking to a thousand potential acquirers and the acquirers are coming back and they go, you know, I like this company, but their customer concentration is too much. Or these are some concerns I have in the next 24 months for this type of company, or they're too heavily weighted. You get a ton of feedback when you're going out to market. And some companies, they decide to go out, test the water and then say, you know what? We learned a ton. We thought this was going to be the right time, but in reality, we need to wait another year or two. So we're just going to take this information back and make some changes and go forward. So with that, you can't always test the market. You can tell people the idea of keeping it secret is huge. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Sean Flynn. Now, Sean is a business owner, founding and growing successful companies in China and Beijing before returning to the U.S. to work with companies ranging from fast-growing startups to established overseas public companies. He has this interesting mix of working at companies at all stages of businesses in his role as a principal at a premier mid-market investment bank, specializing in mergers and acquisitions, capital markets, financial restructuring, and valuation. Now, when I asked Sean to be on the show, what we thought we'd dive into is the process of a business getting acquired. But even thinking about John as an investment banker is kind of fun. He started off as a mechanical engineer. He speaks Mandarin, Spanish, and also hosts the fantastic podcast, the Silicon Valley podcast, which I had the pleasure of being on before. So let's dive in and hear Sean's story, because it's anything but conventional about how he got into investment banking. Most people that are in this profession, you know, they're economics undergrad, MBA, intern and all these big names have all these things on their resume. My path to investment banking was completely different than the majorities. I was overseas for about eight years after college. I did mechanical engineering in undergrad, but the whole time there, I just wanted to travel. And when I graduated, I got the opportunity to. So I spent some time in Costa Rica, China, Europe, back to China, started a couple companies when I was in China. One actually did good. The others were learning experiences. And right on, our favorites. <laughs> that's, how you, that's how you got a label, right? Yeah. And came back to the States in 2013. Established companies didn't want me, but startups loved me. I got interviews at some pretty big names. And they all said the same thing. You'll get bored here in a year and leave. And I was thinking to myself, I'm like, it's Silicon Valley. No one stays longer than a year at a job anyway, but okay. But the startup community loved me. I was a account executive. For one company, while I was there, I got to meet a lot of angel investors. That company folded. The product was great. It just, the sales cycle, a lot of the stuff just wasn't there, but had a lot of great learning experiences, made a lot of great relations. From that and the intros and connections I had with this one angel group, I then was talking to the angels and I said, hey, I got some free time. Let me do some deal screening if you're okay with it. They took me under their wing and... I eventually became the investment director for the second oldest angel group in Silicon Valley. So I was looking at 100 companies a month and just screening them. And I got to sit in this, present my 
kind of reports to all these successful angels that literally would tear them apart. And one of my favorite memories was I did this one report, nice little write up on this one company. I thought I nailed everything. I was like, oh my yeah, gosh, yeah, yeah. I'm nice. so proud yeah. of this. Handed it to them. A couple of days later, this one guy creams like, Sean, that report you handed us, we were talking about it all night at the bar. Oh my gosh. I was all happy. He's like, we've never laughed so hard in our lives. You missed, <laughs> you missed this, 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 this. And I'm sitting there just going, oh man. <laughs> oh man, sinking in your seat. Yeah, for sure. So learned a ridiculous amount through that process. I, mean, I couldn't trade for anything in the world. And there's a lot to be said about that, right? It's funny that you take it on the chin and you smile now, right? But when you're in a scenario with such high caliber people, they keep raising your bar. They demand oh. high expectations of things and give great feedback. And it sounds like that was the experience you actually got, right? Like you were able to park your ego and go, right, how do I make this better and learn from it? Oh my God. I couldn't tell you the amount of things I learned just sitting in a meeting with some of those people as they were talking about a company that just presented. They would come up with questions. I had no idea where they came from. And then when I was listening to them, I go, oh my gosh, that's, that's good. Oh, I wish I had thought of that. I'm going to remember that. And I'd even make little notes to follow up yeah. with questions later that and exactly what you said, because you're trying to bring your game up to their level, but their level is, I mean, some of these people had three or four exits. I mean, I remember one time you'll hear about it in Silicon Valley, even though this is you know, so rare, a company comes in, someone writes a hundred thousand dollar check after 30 minutes. And I saw that one time I was like, that is insane. And then the guy next to me is like, Oh, Tony Ryan, a check like that? That's like you buying a hamburger. And I was like, what? I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. But you're in a you're in a room with people like that. And you're just like, geez, and, and you're asking them questions and getting dinner out. It's just an amazing learning experience that you you can't can't pay for. And that really set me up for everything else I'd done after. Through that, I was setting up deal flow agreements between a lot of the Chinese incubators and accelerator programs that were opened up in Silicon Valley. They had new money. This group had old connections, perfect matchup. Through that, I was helping companies in Silicon Valley go to China, set up operations and vice versa. A lot of that was doing these mini roadshows to make intros to investors. Through that process, I was making a lot of intros to VCs. I made a couple of intros to some investment bankers. One of the intros to an investment bank, they made a ridiculous amount of money from it. And they basically said, hey, Sean, you know, you're good with people. You're able to do all this cross-border. You speak many languages. We can sponsor your licenses if you're interested and come on board. So they sponsored my licenses. I was at that investment bank for a little bit. The plan was kind of to set up an office for them in Singapore, but then the pandemic happened, COVID happened. So that went out the door. The investment bank I'm currently at, I had helped them about seven years ago find a manufacturer for a company they raised capital for uh, in China through my contacts and just stating, I'm very good at keeping relationships. Yeah, you're brilliant at it. Yeah, no, it struck me the moment I met you. You know, yeah, like the so, first time we met in person where, you know, I came to your podcast and you had a room full of fantastic, very interesting, very open people. Because you well, do your heard podcast. who my guest was. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, but. You know, you had had these people in person doing a live show podcast, which is actually, I think, quite unique in itself. But the energy there is fabulous. And one of the first questions people would ask me is, how do you know Sean? 
everyone had an interesting story about how you were helping these people, whether it's an introduction, helping them get a breakthrough. Like it's fascinating how much energy you put into that. Oh, I thought it was going to be, how do you know Sean and why are you still here? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was the second question is the, and you're staying here if I am. <laughs> it was fabulous. So tell me a little bit then about some of the things that maybe you had to unlearn as you sort of got into this world, notions of what you thought investment banking was. And then suddenly, you know, you're sitting there doing it and you're like, hang on a sec. To be successful is actually the opposite of what I thought. What were some of the things that struck you as, as you've got into this uh, position? To be honest, it was, in my mind, when I think of investment bankers, I think Excel. I think sitting there doing macros, doing discount cash flow analysis, doing all these things. In reality, yeah, but there's someone in the back doing that. You have a research team, you have that MBA graduate, you have all these other, the real value, the real skill is that client facing, keeping conversations going, the engagement, making people feel comfortable, asking the questions that need to be asked to find out about the company, to build the marketing material, to pull that information from the owner so that there's no skeletons in the closet. The people skill is so huge in this line of work. And that's something I had no idea going into it. I thought it was, if you're good at Excel, you're good at making charts, you're a good investment banker. But in reality, there's so many people that have those skills that can do that. The real skill is finding the deals, being able to build that relationship, that rapport, and keep everyone engaged through the entire process. I love it. Now, such a good insight. Because this is what we want to talk about, the exit process or getting acquired. You know, for many people, there's like less than 1% of the population that would ever experience going through an acquisition, building a company, selling a company, what's involved in that. I've had glimpses of it in my own career, which is really interesting. Never the founder of the company, maybe just a contributor. It's really interesting, especially in the studio. Nobody's studio is one of the key goals as we're building 100 companies in five years. The point is to build them cheaply and sell them early, potentially, or get acquired early. Like That's how the studio generates revenue, if you will. So when you offered the opportunity to talk through this process, I literally had to like bite your arm off and say, yeah, get on here and you know, educate us all here and tell us some stories. What needs to be done before one decides it's even worth putting up a company for sale? Or how do you even prepare to get your business ready to be acquired? What are some of the things founders should be thinking about? Well, there's so many things that a founder should be doing in anticipation of the sale and preparation. It is time sensitive, a lot of it in the sense that a year before you want to exit, you should be talking to a wealth advisor. You should be talking to a tax you know, strategist. You should be talking to all these people because when the transaction happens, it's too late. And with that wealth advisor, the tax planner, way in advance it should be, talk about your goals because then you can kind of figure out that exit valuation range that you need to fulfill those. It's kind of scary to have a conversation with someone where they say, I need this amount of money. And I tell them your company's not worth anywhere near that. You should wait two, three years, hit these milestones. Then we go out to market again. Then you're in that range. And they go, oh, but I want to sell it now. It's like, you can't have everything. Plan in advance and anticipate. Really, this is going to sound weird to people, but if you build your company from day one in anticipation to sell it, you're actually going to build a better company. And the reason behind that is, when you want to sell your company to have the highest value, 
all your processes are in place, right? right. All the steps yeah. where if you're just building a company, what most founders do is they're into everything. They have to micromanage this, be part of this, be part of that. But in reality, that's not a company that's sellable because right. once that owner's out of the picture, now the company stops. But if on day one, it was, okay, we're going to create these processes. This is the client's journey. Okay. This is this journey. This is the onboarding of every salesperson. This is one sales manager for every salespeople, account exec. This is a, if everything is planned out. Now, when you're going to sell, they're looking at going, oh my gosh, they tracked all their metrics for the year, for the last few years. I've seen how the lifetime value of the clients have been going up. I see the cost of acquiring a customer going down. They can tell me what they've done to make these changes. Wow, I know with our resources coming into this company, we can make it this much more valuable over this amount of time. Now we can give the maximum market valuation for this company, where if it's the other way, where it's, God, these people, we're kind of concerned that once the CEO and that get paid, they're going to lose interest. We're not really 100% sure what's going on here. They don't have all these metrics. They hadn't tracked You know what? We like the company, but we see some risk here. So we can't offer more than this because we got to de-risk this. This is such a great insight. It's really fascinating to hear. And I see that a lot. I see this notion where people are building companies and they're fabulous companies that they build. But if they're too reliant on individuals, they're not building a system. They're not building a scalable machine and monitoring how that machine works and how it operates and how it runs. And so when I hear you talk about this idea of the evaluation lens uh, potential purchases are looking at is this is a robust business. It has scalable systems. It is documented how it operates. It looks at metrics. You can see how it has come to the, the situation that it's in now, choices that were made over time. We talk about this notion in the studio of having like a dossier, if you will, of all these key decisions that we made at different points or junctures of the company. So our hope is when we meet these potential acquirers is that we literally present them this dossier that they're sitting there going, wow, this is like the story of the company that I'm just like flicking through here and understanding twists and turns and how it was built. And that's really important to us. It's fabulous to hear you talk about that as a sort of non-conventional, even the individual side of, of as a founder, planning your life around this thing. What life do I want to have that the business is helping me create, maybe through an exit? And what are the parameters I need to get to so I can live the life maybe potentially I want? It's really fascinating. Well, to dive even deeper in that, think of it this way, like a $10 million exit unplanned and a $6 million exit planned, you could kind of end up with the same numbers at the end of the day based on taxes and everything else, just all depends on how things are planned far enough in advance. There's people I talk to now that they relocate to Nevada or Puerto Rico a year or two in advance of their sale in anticipation for tax reasons. And there's a whole way of thinking of this preparation for this exit to do it right. And by planning ahead, it's quite amazing. And going back to the, I guess, a thing I actually would say I unlearned in this was I remember back working with early stage companies and it was, hey, let's have that open door policy. If you want to contact the CEO or come in anytime, you know, you just go on Slack or just contact, you know, open door everything. You can access people anytime you wanted. 
Well, if you think about it for an exit, that's almost the last thing you want. You'd almost rather talk to the employees and go, hey, tell me about the CEO and them respond. That guy, I, I haven't talked to him in months. I know my KPIs. <laughs> I know what I'm supposed to do. I know the system that I'm running and how to get there. And I know every quarter what I'm doing this quarter and next quarter and the quarter after. But the CEO, why would I talk to him? That's actually kind of the answer you almost want to hear. You almost want to hear these people at the top being able to just go on vacation anytime they want and the company's still growing because everyone knows their roles and what they're responsible for. And a lot of companies, it's kind of the, the exact opposite of that where oh, yeah, people feel that I if they're not the involved, if I'm not able to respond to my text at 3 a.m., that means I'm a bad boss. No, it should be, hey, you're on vacation for two weeks and the company's better when you come back. Yeah, and that's great nuggets and reminder to us all. Let's dive into another part of it. Say you're selling a company and it sort of ties into your open door policy, transparency. Transparency for me is always a double-edged sword. But how do you keep selling your company? Maybe not a secret, but like maybe that's something you're thinking about. Or why would you want to keep it a secret or hold it back from uh, teams? Tell me like what you see, because like you're talking about like planning a year ahead, like straight after this, I'm actually going to go call my accountant, by the way, you've already got me on that. So I'm working. that's good. Tell me more about how you see people manage, not that they're trying to withhold information, but also maybe they mightn't sell. Like there's so many different outcomes there. Share what you've seen in that space. Yeah. There are people that go out without the anticipation of actually selling. They just kind of want to get a, a temperature gauge of what's going on. Because, yeah, with public companies, there's so much information, but private companies, those transactions, there are databases, but really don't know what the market's appetite is currently. And you get a lot of feedback when you go out to market. If you have someone run a process and they're talking to a thousand potential acquirers and the acquirers are coming back and they go, you know, I like this company, but their customer concentration is too much. Or these are some concerns I have in the next 24 months for this type of company. Or... They're too heavily weighted. You get a ton of feedback when you're going out to market. And some companies, they decide to go out, test the water, and then say, you know what? We learned a ton. We thought this was going to be the right time, but in reality, we need to wait another year or two. So we're just going to take this information back and make some changes and go forward. So with that, you can't always test the market. You could tell people the idea of keeping it secret is huge. Here in Silicon Valley or anywhere, as soon as you hear of any changes, what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to think, oh, you know, what are my other options? I'm going to jump ship. Oh, this one's offering this, this one's offering that. Because uncertainty scares a lot of people. Having things kind of out there that's a possibility for a young company to, or well, I mean young, I mean, I'm just saying anything not public, right? I mean, this could be a $200 million company for all we know through. But a company, when there's uncertainty, other companies are going to start possibly poaching your employees. Your vendors might say, hey, what's going on here? Pay me now. You know, these accounts receivable, accounts payable, you'll start getting messages. You'll... There could be a lot of disruption to the company itself as soon as there's the rumor going around that you might be looking to exit, let alone if you actually are or not. And that rumor, who knows, maybe you get early angels calling you, you get someone that you have an old employee that was fired inappropriately coming after you. you. There's all these things, who knows? I've seen this and I'm seeing it like all the time. 
it's really interesting. Like you're reminding me when I think back to Agile Craft, which is the last acquisition I was involved in, right? It was on the advisory board for the company who was bought by Atlassian. And Steve Adley is fantastic CEO, great founder, multiple time founder. You know, and it was really interesting to see in retrospect, of course, the way that he would get feedback from people. He would just sort of ask just very casually, you know, where do you think this company's going? Or what could we be doing more of? Or where are we against competitors? And, and they were all good questions for a CEO to be asking. But in retrospect, you often sit there and go, okay, all right, you could see the processing that was going on in his mind about what way do we grow this company? Maybe this is a good time. Do we just say, screw it, let's just go our own way, get another round of capital and see how far the rocket ship goes or offers were starting to be on the table. Uh, eventually ended up taking one by Atlassian, which was a fabulous offer for the company. It was a great, great company and great acquisition and exit. But it's really interesting though as well, like this notion of how people cope with uncertainty. And I see this a lot, right? Because it makes people pause. It makes them hesitate. It can take them away from their focus of what's most valuable thing that they could do for the company is keep executing their assignments and keep moving forward. And people are like, oh, well, have we, oh, I've, I've heard somebody might be moving or I've heard these sorts of things. And it just builds up. And it's really hard then as well as a leader to strike this balance of what's the right amount of information to share that gives people, you're not holding things back, but you're also helping them stay focused on what's important. I struggle with this, getting that boundary right all the time, because everybody doesn't need to know everything the CEO has had for breakfast, lunch, dinner, thinking about having tomorrow, might go on a holiday next week, thinking about hiring. Like There's just so much going on. It's interesting like just to hear how to think about managing some of that information to keep people focused, but aware and not that they feel in the dark. It's a hard one. One thing to also remember, if you are really running an acquisition process, if you want to get acquired, your company has in the marketing material that's being sent out, it'll talk about your financials for the last couple of years. It'll also have your pro forma. It'll talk about what milestones you're planning on hitting in the coming months and you know even the coming years. And so these acquisition processes, six to nine months, maybe from start to end, you're out to the market for a couple months, due diligence, 60, 90 days, depending. If you're missing your milestones during that time, you know, maybe it's because your employees are quitting. Maybe it's because of this disruption or that. Who knows? Sure, but sure. now the valuation is just going downhill. You're not going to get that top level, top shelf price for your company. You're going to get everything discounted and they're going to have reason for it. It's interesting. It sort of almost ties back again to start exposing. It's like your systems. So the most valuable companies have systems that operate independently almost of individuals. And if you're going through this process and you're, maybe you are, people decide to do other things or distracted, it can show some of the fragility, I suppose, of the deal, especially as time goes on. It's interesting then to go, there's this great statement people say is time kills all deals. What's sort of your reaction to that? Because I, I know Mark McNally, our you know, CEO or chief at Nobody Studios, he says this to me like all the time. You know, the number one killer of deals, Barry, is time. Time it takes to do them, to close them, to move on. We, you know, we got to get great at 
getting deals done in a timely fashion. So tell me some of your war stories or examples of what you've seen of time kills all deals. Well, just think of it this way. You're talking to a potential acquirer and they say, hey, we just need some more information here. And you go, okay, I'll I'll get that. But you don't have in your data room. You have to go talk to so-and-so to get it for you. Two weeks go by, you send it to them and they go, oh, we just started looking at this other company. Okay, that deal's done. And this isn't uncommon where you're talking to one potential acquirer today and then they're getting deals sent to them all the time. So maybe you're that flavor of the week, but by next week, there's another deal a little bit sweeter on their desk. And now they've pivoted over to that one. So much can happen in such a short time. Who knows? Pandemic. Who knows? War overseas. Who knows this supply chain disruption and now your numbers aren't going to be hit next year. All right. Now let's lower the valuation. There is a new law coming out with 1099 employees and you have a ton of them. Okay. Well, guess what? Now that affects the value. Anything can happen and you don't know. You, know, you don't have a crystal yeah. ball. And the person on the other side, so when you're in the marketing phase, when you're talking to all these potential buyers, great. You can kind of choose here and there. But once you're down to the nitty gritty, once you pick that one dance partner, all the power shifts. And you want to close this while they're still excited, when they're still happy, not when they're going, hey, you know, it was cool before, but now I'm just, you know, I'm kind of worried about the sector. There's this new technology out there that could compete. I just... Having second thoughts, I just, I just don't know. So, you know, it's funny. I've had that. I've sat on the other side of that conversation, right? And it's like it's infuriating. But as you share it, I'm like, I can see this all the time. How to maximize the moments when you feel like there's a good fit and it feels good for everybody. Getting the thing done is so important. We did our first acquisition in the studio this year. It's Thoughtforma. It's a serverless, no code platform. Beyond excited about getting them into the studio. I think it's going to be an amazing product and company in in our portfolio. Again, it was just fascinating actually to be on the other side of the table. That was the first time for me that I'd actually actively been involved in organizing an acquisition. And the time notion was so important to us. There were moments where you felt like, oh, right, yeah, that document, one more thing, right? Or, oh, hang on, we found out that there's this edge case tax that we need to cover over here that we didn't know about or it felt like a thousand paper cuts at times that were just like, gosh, someone just like crossed the T and dot the I and let's get this thing done. Time felt like the enemy all the time. It's another iteration. It's another moment where the circumstances could change. And we got through it by all means. But a lot of that was the commitment of the people because we felt on both sides, this was great for everybody. And there was a real like rapport there. I could see it going the other way. And I'm already starting to see some of these, like as we start to look at more companies and go through the processes, there's been moments where I'm like, oh my God, this company is exactly what we need right now. And then like three weeks later, I'm like, sorry, what? Oh, I forgot about that company. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. So it's funny that you share these examples because yeah, I'm seeing it on both sides, right? Because we're building ultimately to see how well the company performs or exited early. That's part of our thesis as well as try to bring companies into the studio where we're on the other side of the funnel. It's fascinating, but emotions keep coming into it, right? This is one of the things I'm really feeling. And I think it's a a really great question to ask someone like yourself. How do sellers' emotions play a part in this process? And how can they recognize that, lean into them, let go of them, 
I'd love to hear some of your insights that you've seen for people going through this. I don't want to do the uh, shameless plug, but this is the big value of having outside advisor, whether it's an M&A advisor or, or an investment banker such as myself, because they can prep you in advance of the whole process, just like that wealth advisor and that, that I mentioned, talk to way in advance, because this process is so emotional, but and it's not just for the founder, the owners. So think of it this way. You've built this for five or six years. You may have even been divorced because you spent so much time on this. You may have lost your house because of this. And now finally you're seeing that exit. You don't have hobbies anymore. Your friends are minimal because you spent 60 to 80 hours. No one talks on to you day. anymore. Yeah. No. You're like, what are you calling me for? I haven't seen you in three years. <laughs> you're painting hey, a great picture of a great life here, Sean. I love these people. Yeah. We all know these people. That's the craziest part. But okay, okay, okay. We'll scale back. They put in all the processes day one. They managed this in with the idea that it was going to be sold one day. They're working reasonable hours, but okay, now it's time to actually sell the company. They've talked to their significant other. Hey, honey, I'm going to sell the company. Great. Okay. That person's mine. Maybe it gets sold in 30 days, but he's already explained, hey, you know, the process takes six to nine months. All right. You're building out the marketing materials. You're building out the data room. You're getting asked all these questions. Hey, why did you do this? Why did you do that? You feel, hey, these people are attacking me. This right. is my baby. Very and they're asking like these that. questions. So you get a little emotional there. Then it's finally time to go out to market, bring the buyers to the table. And you're like, wait, we've been out to the market three or four days and no one's responded. What's going on? You should be telling me there's a hundred letters of intent on my desk. Like, no, no, no. You know, there's so many ups and downs through this process. That's just the owner's part. Now, like I said, the significant other, I've had conversations where it's, hey, you know, What's going on with you today? Oh, my wife's already spent the money that we don't have. I'm like, oh, that that's great. You know, you still got a long time. Let's hope this closed because, well, yeah, you know, or this is happening. There's all these outside things in people's lives that carry over to the transaction where you'll be on a management call and someone will just burst something out or get a little bit emotional overreact for a question and you're just like hey calm down what's really going on and then it's something not even related to the business in two degrees of separation but it's entered into the picture hey that person there might have been a call where this one person from the other side popped on zoom looked at some person after the call go hey, i don't want to do this deal i never want to see them again why i worked with that guy 10 years ago didn't like him oh okay you know there's all these people in this that once yeah, yeah. you bring them so people, you dynamics. don't know the history. You have yeah. no idea the history and emotions flare the whole time. And then towards the end of it, maybe it's, you know, I've been at this company so long. I really don't know what I'm going to do after it. I don't feel like giving it up now. Actually, I'm going to hold on to it for another couple of years. You're like, wait, what? But you already had this vision of you hanging out in the Philippines with Barry, drinking yeah. Maltai. Like what happened there? Like, well, you <laughs> know, things have changed. It, there's just so much that goes into it. You know, it's up and downs, up and downs, the entire process. And it's pretty incredible being that third party kind of witnessing it and kind of being a guide in hand and just seeing the emotions play out. One day the offer is the greatest thing. And the other day it's no, no, we can't do that much of an earnout. We need a seller. And, oh no, I need more cash up front. Well, why do you need more cash? I had golf the other day. I played golf with this guy and he got more cash. So I need more cash. Like what? 
Really, yeah. you were happy. You were literally really you're ec- ecstatic two weeks ago. What's going on here? Come on. I can hear you sort of ask the questions that you would be asking people, right? And a lot of this relationship getting to the source of the people problem behind what the visible behavior you're seeing. It's just interesting even to hear you share those sort of anecdotes, right? Because that's what I keep hearing is even when you're hearing or seeing the reaction of this isn't enough for me, or I want to change the deal points or whatever it is, your lead question is what's really going on here? It's interesting. Like, how do you keep yourself out of the emotion? It's a sort of double-edged sword thing again, right? Because I always find when you do hard things with people and you do them well, it goes beyond work. You actually get to know people personally and become friends with them and you know them at a deeper level. Hard things build good relationships. Getting through them builds great relationships. How do you sort of almost try and manage that yourself, right? Because you're meeting all these people, you're going through what could be one of the most significant events in their life, especially the first time maybe they're selling the company. They might've had the company for 20 years, could be their identity. There's so much that could be going on there. So how do you manage your own emotions through that, that scenario that you don't feel like you're pulled in or you, know, you can bring your sort of candid advice to the situation? First off, what I've learned is you make money by the deals you walk away from, not the deals you take. And so now whenever I'm working with anyone, I've got to know them way in advance of the transaction before sign-in engagement. I've had several calls. I've had several meetings. I've laughed with the person. I, I just think, okay, I can hang out with this person for the next year and get along and be blunt with this person. Because if the person you're working with can't be brutally honest, honestly, that's not a good person to work with because they're going to have to tell you stuff you don't want to hear and they have to be comfortable telling you that and vice versa. You're going to have to take it from their side as well if you're not fulfilling what they think you should be or if they have questions or that. It's got to go both ways where everyone's got thick skin that can be blatantly honest. And then with that, you have to know when the other person says something like, I don't know, hypothetically, I know Israel special forces and I'm coming after you. How could you blah, blah. And then the next day you're joking about it. You're like, okay, you were just a little crazy in that moment. I see that. I see that. Hypothetically. 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 (laughs) Yeah. You just get letters at your door. You don't, you're not finding horse heads outside your house. I hope for these days, sort of the fun of all this process. So really fascinating stuff. What then just to ask maybe at a bit more of a zoom out level, like what do you think the investment banking industry needs to unlearn a little bit? You know, we're, we're at again, another one of these sort of interesting parts of the process, right? We went from, I've literally had friends walk in with pitch decks, no team, no nothing, actually just an idea and they've been getting funded. And now suddenly I've got people who have phenomenal businesses, really resilient. Nobody even calls them back. So what do you think is sort of going on that maybe the, the investment industry as you're seeing, might need to think about on learning, especially on the back of the pandemic and how the world has changed a lot. To start, I think investment bankers are the worst marketers, worst brand ambassadors for themselves ever. That's your personal mission now. You're coming on with your comedy and your fun stuff. Yeah, good. You're making a change. I love it. When your company does a LinkedIn post on Christmas and think they're doing a good job, I just got to shake my head. And 
being in Silicon Valley, it's hilarious because I'll have conversations with people and they'll go, oh, you're a venture capitalist. I'm like, no, I'm an investment banker. And they're like, what's the difference? I'm like, oh, it's a huge difference. You know, I run the processes for mergers, acquisitions, raising growth capital. I don't have my own funds to invest. No one in Silicon Valley, not no one, but the bulk of them lump us all in one category. And then no one's ever heard of anyone either. And it goes back to that whole marketing and people think, oh, you went to Harvard Business School that's your lead gen. And I'm sitting there going, Hey guys, there's this thing called Salesforce navigator. Should we use it? Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I know this guy, Barry, he can get us a Filipino VA, do some outreach for us. What are you guys thoughts? No. All right. Great. Well, I'll be on his podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Like, but as you said at the top of the show, right? Like you have a non-conventional path into this world. And yes, the majority are going on the, the very specific elevator go to the right school, go to the right college, do your MBA, do three years of Goldman Sachs. But like, it's a sort of that path, which in many ways is sort of, it creates bad PR for the industry and it sort of keeps it closed. And yet what's fascinating with someone like yourself, as you say, you've lived in all these different countries, you're a mechanical engineer, you went this whole unconventional path and yet you're having these fantastic results and people love working with you. People just like collaborating with you as a result and starting your own podcast, doing it in person, having like a hundred people in the room where it's suddenly like this great networking event. It was very unique and not what I expected from an investment banking podcast when, uh, you, you know, we first met and you're saying, come and do this show. I'm like, really? <laughs> I actually got a pretty funny story for you with the investment bank in the podcast at the, the current mid-market bank I'm at during the interview process, they asked me, they're like, what do you do for fun? I was like, oh, I have a podcast. And one of the guys interviewing me was like, what's a podcast? <laughs> I'm like, well, it's, it's like the radio. And he's like, have you ever interviewed anyone famous? I was like, Jim McKelvey, co-founder of Square. They're like, no. I'm like Melody Perkins, co-founder of Canva. Never heard of him. I was like, oh, it's a she, but okay. And then I was like, well, this morning I, I interviewed Axel Schutz, the founder of Computer 2000, third largest distribution. And the guy stopped me. He's like, I sold a company to Axel in 1997. And then for the next 40 minutes, he told me about the deal. And I said nothing. I was just quiet. I was like, wow, wow. And at the very end, it was, I like you. You're going to do good here. I like you. <laughs> oh, man, I love This is so good. It's so funny. Sometimes it's just finding the connection. While you're doing it through your curiosity and speaking to these fabulous founders just and you know you share that with the world the show was great you have a great sense of humor people really enjoy it i think you don't take yourself so seriously the fact that you're sort of sharing these fun little examples that's human that's the way the world is it's a pleasure to, to enjoy it with you so looking ahead then what are some of the things you're most excited about as you look at like the future of finance and the work you're doing and how you think it's starting to change some of the things I'm very excited about is finally people being comfortable doing in-person events again. I just held two weeks ago, half-day summit. I plan on doing those quarterly. Barry, I'd love to have you on stage when you fly yeah, in. Or who knows, maybe we can even do one overseas. That excites me. What really also excites me is cross-border MMA. been having a lot of conversations lately with people from Singapore and Hong Kong, really getting interested. I know there's still CFIUS and, and some of these regulations, but are looking towards the future. 
when things might change for some deal flow. Really excited because a lot of these overseas companies are now also thinking, hey, we need to set up operations in the U.S. We need manufacturing in the U.S. We need a lot of stuff happening here. And they're going, okay, we need to raise capital for that. And then later on, hopefully we go public on NASDAQ, something like that. But having these conversations where it's, yeah, we can help you acquire a company here. We can help you do a couple of roll-ups. We can help you then get acquired by a private equity group or whatever you know your exit of choice is. Just having these conversations on national scale is fantastic. And just how people are now, I almost want to say for the last two years, they've had all these dreams built up and now they're sharing them with the world and going, oh, hey, I got to yeah, catch right up on two years of stuff. Let's move yeah. fast. Let's let's go. Couldn't agree more. One of the most fascinating parts about moving to the Philippines is even here already, got plugged into a fantastic angel investment group. So actually, I think 60% of our capital has come from outside the US and nobody studios. Investors who want to get involved in the market or and like turning, it's part of our mission. We want to be a global business and like we've investors now in Singapore, Hong Kong, obviously Europe, South America, North America, like it's Australia, New Zealand. It's been amazing to see where people have come uh, from to actually be involved in the process. So super excited to uh, keep following what you're doing. How can people stay in touch? Your podcast is obviously fabulous, but what's the best way for people to keep in touch with what you're doing? Plug in the pl- podcast, go to thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. I'm on all the social media channels. Best to connect with me actually is on LinkedIn. So just look for Sean, S-H-A-W-N-F-L-Y-N-N. So Sean Flynn, investment banker, that's me. I'm sure there'll be information in my bio in the show notes for that. So please connect with me there. That's the best way to, to reach me. And honestly, if you have any questions for a transaction, maybe a year or two from now, this is the best time to start having those conversations. I do have a, an archive library of some amazing interviews, one with Barry O'Reilly. So if you're looking for some insights into the man to the legend, <laughs> where he's on the other side of the microphone, check out that episode. I love it, Sean. Again, thanks for the friendship and having me on the show and having you on the show. I'm sure we'll have you back again in the future. Uh, have a great day. Mm, thank you.